This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. Welcome to the Three Lions podcast. My name is Russell Osborne and this is an independent England football supporters podcast. I hope I find you well and we are back with another in our England managers series. As I'm sure you're aware, we have been looking at the previous managers of our senior men's team and speaking who have done the work, researching them and writing about them. You may remember we began with Walter Winterbottom, we moved to Alf Ramsey, Don Revy, Ron Greenwood, and most recently, Bobby Robson, where I spoke with David Hartrick. All those previous episodes can be found at your podcast provider of choice, or of course, threelinespodcast.com. Now, you would think that Graham Taylor would be next, and under normal circumstances, you'd be right. And I'm doing the research on that one. It will come soon. But before that, There is someone else who has cropped up who I think has an important role to play in the whole manager story, the managerial story. The good people at Pitch Publishing have connected me with David Tossel, who has written a biography on Don Howe, of course, Bobby Robson's right hand man and very good friend. So it's all tied in quite nicely. So, David, welcome along. Thank you for having me. Hey, you're more than welcome. When I, this book came my way, uh, it was, I kind of thought it was a little bit of a, a Star Wars spin-off in a, in a strange way. I, I do like my Star Wars in the fact that this, whilst Don Howe was never a, an England manager, he had another part of the story that Rogue One had to Star Wars. I don't know if I'm speaking to uh, to someone who's not familiar with Star Wars, but that was just my my immediate take on it no don't worry i get the analogy no problem (laughs) but yes the story of don howe english football's greatest coach uh the hero in the shadows as i say i've got the book in front of me there he is on the front wearing his england jacket how did this come about let's let's start at the beginning i've written quite a few books about people from from that era um players coaches managers you know people like Alan Ball and Jimmy Greaves and Malcolm Allison written quite a bit about um, Arsenal in the in the early 70s wrote a book about the double team did a biography of Bertie Mee so Don Howe had been a, a figure in a lot of those books and sort of looking around for the next subject it just felt to me that that Don Howe was 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 an important figure in English football um, who doesn't always get the the credit he deserves and sometimes amongst those people who are sort of aware of him, maybe gets a bit of a raw deal uh, in that he's, over the years, um, I guess, been sort of saddled with a bit of a dour image, uh, both in terms of personality and sort of the nature of, of the football that some of his teams have played, which I'm, I'm sure we'll come to later. So it felt like it was sort of time to, to kind of examine his career, potentially put the record straight a little bit and just sort of outline what an important figure he's been um, in English football over you know a very long period of time, and obviously as it relates to the England team, 
you know, hugely important in that he was there at the side of three different England managers in World Cup semi-finals and and sort of you know major tournaments. And I guess you could say he was probably the one sort of specialist English coach in in English football history. Really, I mean, most England managers now, as we know, sort of bring in their own right-hand man, someone who they've worked with at club level. You think of people like, you know, Ray Lewington working with Roy Hodgson and mm. Sammy Lee with Sam Allardyce and Derek Fazakali with, with Kevin Keegan and, and people like that. Whereas whereas Don Howe was the, the one guy that England managers would turn to and say, right, we need you. There was a great quote from from the Times in around 1996 that said, you know, Don Howe, he, he never gets the England job, but he comes with the job. Um, yeah. And I think that sort of sums up quite nicely his importance to the English, the England team. Yes. Well, you mentioned that many of the books that you've you've written, and am I right in saying that in in the research that you've done for for some of those books, you actually met and sort of communicated with with Don? Yeah, I spoke to Don Howe a few times. First of all, when I, I wrote the book about the Arsenal double team, you know, he he was great, giving me an insight into into what made that team so good and his role in that. Then also spoke to him again in a little bit more detail when I, when I did a biography of, of Bertie Mee. Um, and then he's cropped up in other books. Um, a biography I did of Malcolm Allison. Don Howe was was um, an interesting figure in that, in that he and Allison were kind of part of the first wave of real English coaches, if you like. I mean, coaching wasn't really a thing until sort of the, the 1950s, really. Um, and, you know, Wilter Winterbottom, who you, who you mentioned it earlier, as part of his role as England manager, was also responsible for the whole sort of coaching setup in English football and helped get a lot of people onto that pathway and helped make a lot of people see that, you know, coaching actually had a large part to play in English football. And Malcolm Allison and then just sort of behind him, Don Howe, were sort of, amongst the first people to really take that on and and see the importance it had in the English game itself and then also to see it as a, a sort of real viable career path. So, um, yeah, so it was part of the Malcolm Allison story and it sort of cropped up in, in various other sort of things as well along the way. So, as I say, you know, he, he is someone who's who's in a very important part of English football. There's a, there's a the website, um, a guy sort of, looks at um, English footballer autobiographies and he's come up with a thing called the Don Howe rule, which is where it's it's kind of almost obligatory for anyone who's played football in the last 40 years to sort of say what a great coach Don Howe was. So, you know, he has sort of crossed along across many people's life stories, if you like. Yeah, yeah, I picked up on that throughout the book. There's a lot of positive quotes from, from various players. Um, what do you think he would have thought to having a uh, a book written about his story from your experience with him? Um, I don't think he would have really seen what the value was and, uh, and, and why someone would be interested in, in chronicling what he'd done in football. He, I guess he saw it as a job of work. Um, he didn't have a big ego. He didn't... Um, he wasn't one of these people who kind of, you know, would ever say, right, put your medals on the table, you know, show me what you've won. He just enjoyed the job for the job's sake. And that's why throughout his career, 
he ended up working at a lot of varied outposts, um, you know, including some non-league teams who just went to him and wanted some help. And so he, he would kind of help them out. You know, when he started working with Terry Venables as uh, the, new, the New England manager at the end of 93, Don Howe at that time was working with Newbury Town in the sort of the Division 2 of the old Isthmian League just because someone had come to him and said, we'd like your help. And he said, yeah, fine, I'll do it. He enjoyed coaching. He enjoyed working with players. He enjoyed helping people improve their own game. And he saw himself as a jobbing football coach. Um, of course, he loved the glory. He loved winning prizes as, as anyone would. But it wasn't necessarily um, the motivation for his career in the sense of what he could get out of it in terms of his own profile. He just loved the work. Yeah. Um, and so I think if someone had said to him, right, I'm going to write a book about you, he'd just, he, his, his reaction would have been, you know, don't waste your time. <laughs> there isn't a story there. Wow. Far, far from it. Far from it. It's a, it's a very enjoyable story. But let, let's start at the beginning. He was born in Wolverhampton, 12th of October, 1935, um, at a period of time when when wolves were were quite a team. Um, he got to signing on age, um, where he signed on with West Bromwich Albion, where he went on to spend, I think, perhaps the best part of 12 years uh, as a player there, moved to Arsenal um, for, for a couple of years. And then in that period of time, won himself 23 England caps within the space of two years between sort of 57 and, and 59 as a uh, as a right back what what was his sort of playing career sort of defined by yeah it's, it's interesting his is in some ways his playing career has kind of been forgotten by what he's done as a coach um but he was a very accomplished fullback um very much a fullback more in in the modern style i mean right backs in the in the sort of late forties and early fifties, were almost judged by how far they could kick the winger into the stands. <laughs> um, they weren't expected to play a lot of football. It was just uh, you know, don't let the winger get past you. But Don Howe was one of the earlier people to actually um, try and play a bit of football, if you like. He was a disciple or a fan, if you like, of Alf Ramsey, who who was. Um, Again, a bit more of a footballing right back than, than a lot of people have been used to seeing at that time. So he saw himself as someone who could play a bit of football. He liked to overlap. He liked to attack. Um, he developed very good partnerships and relationships with, with, with people who played uh, in front of him. So at West Brom, for example, he, he became very good friends, as you mentioned, with Bobby Robson. But they, they meshed very well. Um, as a unit, Robson sort of playing at right half and, and Don Howe at right back created quite a, a partnership and were responsible for a lot of the creativity in West Brom's team. So he certainly wasn't just a stopper type fullback. He was acknowledged as being a, a good footballer as well. Um, and, you know, won 23 England caps, as you say, on the trot, finally sort of losing his place to to Jimmy Armfield, who, who I guess was another sort of fullback in that same mould, someone who could play a bit of football. Um, so during the course of that, he, he played in the 1958 World Cup finals and um, just had a, a bit of a loss of form after the 58 World Cup, which cost him his place and, and never got it back, although he was a, a squad member in 62. But by that time, 
he, he was starting to see a potential future in coaching and he saw his involvement in the 62 World Cup as much more of a, a learning experience and a chance to go and watch international football at the highest level in, in a different environment than he saw it as a chance to add to his number of England caps. Yeah. The way he sort of looked at the game was was quite interesting in the facts you mentioned there when he sort of his his career where he fell out of form um, in part of his early career um, and thought to himself, actually, if if this ends my career, what else do I know? And before, I guess, the the whole managerial or coaching um, side of things uh, came to him, he became a car salesman for five months and, and he had a, a stint selling was it machine tools yeah that's right I mean you know England, even an England player uh, of that era knew that he was never going to earn enough money to to live off they everyone had to have one eye at some point on what they did after their football career so yeah, I guess that the more successful players who had a little bit of money behind them, the thing was to kind of open your own business. You know, you had a lot of people buying news agents or opening pubs or, or whatever. Don, as you say, went into car salesmanship for a while and, and then sold machine tools. It was only sort of quite late in in his career that, that he saw that coaching was actually a way of, of staying in the game. Originally he, he, kind of gone on coaching courses because he felt it would give him a greater appreciation of football and would actually help him as a player. It wasn't necessarily with a view to a future career. Um, but as time went on, that's how it developed. And that is what he eventually realised was his kind of his post-playing path, if you like. And as things worked out at Arsenal with, with suffering a, a very badly broken leg not long after he went there it ended up that he he had a chance to go into it a little bit earlier than he would have planned yeah it was Bertie Mee who was who's manager of Arsenal there who who suggested he manage their reserves yes I mean he, he he broke his leg in a in a very sort of bad collision you know one of those ones where other players on the field said you know you could hear the crack over the the sound of the crowd all, all around the stadium. And so even though he did play the odd game after that, it, it was clear that this was career ending. Bertie Mee, the big strength of Bertie Mee was that he was very good at identifying people around him who could do a good job. Bertie Mee was a physiotherapist by trade, had played a little bit of professional football, was a very good organiser, but was never going to be one to do the coaching himself. So, he, you know, he'd, he'd identified Dave Sexton as his first team coach. He knew that Don Howe was interested in, in that side of things. So once Don wasn't able to play anymore, his idea was that he, he coached the reserve team and that would sort of get him on that coaching pathway. As it turned out, he only did that for a year because Dave Sexton then went off to, to manage Chelsea um, and that gave him a chance to step up again, probably more quickly than he, than he might have been anticipating and became the Arsenal first team coach. The Arsenal players had loved Dave Sexton. They'd, he'd been the, a, a real sort of revelation to them. Um, and Don Howe had to sort of fight a little bit to make them realise that, you know, he had something to offer as well. And and had a sort of famous blow up with, with the players at a practice section where he said, look, you know, come on, Dave, Dave Sexton's gone. I'm in charge now. You've got to do it for me. Um, and from then on, never really look back. That's right. Yeah, that was that was on, on the training pitch where um, I read that, yeah, he, he thought, right, it's time I 
put my foot down and sort of establish myself here. But I think he, once he got to sort of that sort of higher position at, at Arsenal, he realised that there was a lot more that came with it as sort of coach come manager. And it, it, it wasn't his way of, or it wasn't what he wanted to do. Yeah, I think one of the one of the big conundrums of Don Howe's career as a whole, if you like, is is how someone who could be so successful as a coach at so many different clubs and in so many sort of different circumstances could not have that same success as a manager. Um, and I think it was something that he felt he had to have a go at at some point. So after winning the double. With Arsenal, he had the chance to go and manage West Brom. But I think he probably, at moments when he was being most honest with himself, would realise that it wasn't necessarily something he was cut out for. He didn't want to do the administration. He didn't want to do the the PR and press stuff that he'd seen sort of Bertie Me have to do at Arsenal. That was why by Bertie and Don worked so well together. You know, Bertie had no aspirations to be a great coach. He was, as I said earlier, he was a very good organiser and an administrator, would do the sort of the PR stuff and deal with the board and, and everything else that went with that and left Don Howe to get on with, with, the, with the coaching. When Don Howe became a manager and had to do more of that himself, it just it just wasn't something that he was necessarily cut out to do didn't want to do it was a, it was a chore that i guess he had to to do he didn't want to go and sort of glad hand with the with the board of directors he just wanted to be on the on the training pitch and that's why things worked so well with with, with don howe and then sort of later other people that he worked with and why maybe it wasn't so successful when he was when he was his own man at West Brom and, and sort of later at Arsenal and a couple of other places. He just seemed appeared to be cut out and born to be a number two. Yeah. It seems that he he was almost torn between two clubs, uh, West Brom and Arsenal. But he had such a uh, an influence on on both when he was at um West Brom, just as his sort of time was was coming to an end there he was the man who basically brought former england captain brian robson into the fold there who who brian robson himself said he could see what what don howe was all about yeah i mean in you know in some ways that yeah maybe the, the, the greatest legacy that, that that don howe had as as west brom manager was the fact that he was the one who signed brian robson to a a sort of full-time professional contract and you know and and Robson said in his own autobiography that you know that w- what a great influence Don Howe had been on him and was again later on when he sort of worked under him as uh, an England player and alongside him as an England coach you know, again one of those players that has nothing but a huge amount of respect for him um, so yeah, the West Brom thing didn't work out very well, but if nothing else, it got uh, it got Brian Robson into the fold, and and you know everyone knows what 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 that did both for Robson himself and for West Brom and and for English football, I guess. That's right. And so the, his time at West Brom came to an end, and and he returned to to Arsenal to to work with then Arsenal manager Terry Neal, where between them they had sort of one of the most sort of successful periods that Arsenal have, have had sort of pre 
Wenger, where they had three FA Cup finals, they had European finals. It was quite a, a dynamic duo between the pair of them. It was, and, and very different to what had gone before. I mean, the, as I said earlier, the big sort of stick that people beat Don Howe with when, when they look at his career and, and the teams was the fact that the teams that he was in charge of and developed weren't necessarily playing the most uh, the beautiful of football. Yeah. Um, and that certainly was true for the Arsenal double team of 71. They were they, What they did, they did extremely well. And if you speak to a lot of players, they will tell you that they were more innovative and technically proficient, if you like, than, than a lot of people gave them credit for. But they certainly weren't weren't playing the kind of football that Arsenal under uh, under Arsene Wenger would play. No. So when he, he teamed up with with Terry Neal, they had that three year period where they got to a lot of finals, uh, had a lot of success in cup tournaments, and were doing it in, in a very different style um he had people like liam brady graham ricks alan hudson for a while malcolm mcdonald was you know a hugely exciting forward they had the tools that to play the kind of game that that he, he hadn't had if you like under under bertie me when you've got players like brady and ricks it doesn't make sense to play a direct game and and sort of lump the ball forward to the front too you want to get those people in the game and Don Howe was pragmatic more than anything else. Um, he would play whatever way he felt gave his team the best chance of victory. And if you've got people like Brady and Ricks in the team, the best chance is to get the ball to their feet and let them play. Yeah. And that was what he did. What he did do also, though, is he told people like Liam Brady that you had to earn the right to play. You couldn't just get the ball and start dribbling it around and, and you know, suddenly success would would come you had to think about the game you had to work hard at it and so once he got all those sort of things moving in the right direction and I can say this as an Arsenal fan who was standing on the North Bank in that period it it was some of the most exciting football that Arsenal fans had seen for for many many years Um, you know it was a joy to watch in the end they were in a sense a little bit of a victim of their own success in that Certainly in that 1979-80 season where they got to two finals, they were just basically wiped out by the end of it. They had to play so many games that you know, they, they just they just ran out of steam in the end and, and lost two finals in the space of four days at, in the FA Cup and the Cup Winners' Cup. Um, and so the team probably never quite got the trophies that maybe they thought they should have deserved. But you know, certainly, if you ask any Arsenal fan of, of that period, they would have nothing but sort of fond memories of the football they saw. Yeah. Now, is it right that he would often work wherever he went, sort of without a contract? Yeah, he did that at quite a few places, um, either as manager and, and coach. Um, he he would kind of do a sort of rolling contract, basically. He wasn't, again, he wasn't one f- for worrying about his his own status if you like his own employment status he just wanted to get on and work with the players um, and the other stuff would kind of take care of itself right and so that that was kind of one of the products was of that you're right was that he often didn't work with a contract it meant that he was kind of open to a lot of speculation about you know what he might do with his career because people knew he wasn't didn't have a long-term contract so therefore when some opportunities came up it might be that, that Don Howe's name would come up. I mean, when he was coaching England um, under 
Ron Greenwood in, in the early 80s, um, because he didn't have a, a contract at Arsenal, some of the players wondered if he had a long-term future at Arsenal, whether he was going to suddenly ditch them and, and go off and and work full-time with England because um, you know his, his contract would allow him to do that. Eventually, he did sign a contract with Arsenal that sort of made that a little bit more secure and took some of that that doubt away from the players. But, um, yeah, you're right. He wasn't one to worry too much about his contract status. He just status. He just wanted to get on with the job. Yeah, I can appreciate that. Now, we said, obviously, there was maybe torn between both West Brom and, and Arsenal. Um, but he would have England at heart as well. Reading the book, there was a part, whilst he was at Arsenal, he, he came into conflict with Bertie Mee, the manager, who had wanted Peter Storey and Bob McNabb to withdraw from an England team at the time. Um, and how insisted to him, you can't ask them to drop out of the England side, uh, which is, I don't think it's something you would hear these days. Especially not in the in the heat of a, a you know a league title battle, which is mm. what it was at the time. I think it reflects a couple of things. It reflects the way that Don Howe thought about the England team, and it also, I guess, reflects the the time as well and the age where, I guess, playing for England for a player was maybe seen as more of an honour than it is today, perhaps, by some people. Um, certainly, you know, Don Don looked at that from a player's perspective rather than the coach's perspective. And, and, and he knew that he well, he felt that it would be unfair to the players uh, to force them to pull out of playing for England because there was a clash of, of league games. I guess the other thing it reflects <laughs> was the period when Football didn't just stop for international games. You know that they all had to be fitted into the calendar when and however they could be. And and if there'd been some postponements in the league program and and games had to be played in the same week as international games, then players and clubs did have to choose which was going to be their priority. And and all credit to Don in from you know looking at it from an England perspective, he felt it was more important for those Arsenal players to to play for England rather than to play in a league game. Yeah. Well, let's let's move on to England. Uh, when the the Don Revy period, it as we know, came to a, a an acrimonious end. Um, Ron Greenwood was appointed, and one of his visions was to bring back the the England youth sides, um, of which Bobby Robson was appointed as the England B manager, uh, and with that, um, he appointed Don as his assistant. Which I mean, that that friendship goes back goes back way before then but it shows it moving forwards yeah i mean it, it, it was, i think it was actually uh, ron greenwood himself who said like bobby robson and don howe should work together at the b team he had okay. um uh dave sexton and terry venables working the under 21s and sort of infamously had brian clough and peter taylor in charge <laughs> for a while of the youth team which <laughs> Surprise, surprise, didn't really work out. Um, but it was it was it was an interesting way of, of approaching things. I mean, Ron Greenwood was someone who realized that there was an awful lot of clever thinking around English football. And why not get those people involved in the England team? So, you know, Don was given a role at the B team. He also was given a role sort of on the on the 
senior team coaching staff as well. And when Ron Greenwood went out to watch the the 1978 World Cup finals, he asked Don Howe to go out with him as well as part of that group. So he was all Don Howe fairly quickly became part of Ron Greenwood's inner circle. And he eventually asked him to, well, not eventually, but quite quickly asked him to start working with the first team. Um, and then with uh, the illness and then um, sort of tragic early death of Bill Taylor, who, who was officially the England team coach in 81, Don sort of stepped up and, and took over that mantle. And that was whilst he was still technically Arsenal's coach as well, wasn't yeah, it? Correct. Yes. And, and, you know, Don never saw that as a conflict. Um, he, he always felt that that was something that he could do. And, and he felt he, he, Don was such a student of the game that he saw that working with England and working with lots of different players could actually help him as a coach. And I guess then help whichever club he was with, you know, as you say at that time, Arsenal, he would, quiz people like Viv Anderson and Tony Woodcock about what Brian Clough was doing at at uh, Forest. He would ask people what was going on at, at their clubs. He wanted to know all the time what other things were being thought of, what other methods were out there that he could use and adopt. Um, so he saw that as an opportunity to expand his knowledge of the game and would actually be a help to him at his club rather than creating any kind of conflict of interest. Yeah. They so they went to the 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 World Cup in 82 in Spain. England went there, didn't lose a game, but unfortunately came home in the second round, wasn't it? But there was there was a lot of talk at the time that maybe Don was having a little more influence over the team than than actually Ron Greenwood, the manager, was. Yeah, and that, that all came to a head in the in the first game of, of the second phase. England had won all three games in their in the in their group and got into um, the the second round, which you know some people may remember was sort of four groups of three, um, with the the winner of each going into the semi finals. England were grouped with Germany, West Germany, and Spain, and first game in the group drew nil nil with West Germany. And even though West Germany went on to to be in the final, that they weren't wasn't the best West German team anyone had ever seen. And there the feeling was that England in that match, had they been a little bit more adventurous, could have beaten them rather than drawing nil nil. Um, and so a lot of you know the, the TV pundits and and particularly ITV who covered the game live, John Bond and Mick Shannon on on their panel were were saying look, this doesn't look like a Ron Greenwood team. John Bond had been a, a teammate of, of Ron Greenwood's and had played under him at West Ham. And he said, that is not the Ron Greenwood football that I know. This was a Don Howe performance. Um, and it's to the detriment of the England team that they are, they are playing that way. Um, and it became quite a debate. Um, you know, Ron Greenwood had to sort of step in and, 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 and defend Don and then it came to the next the next game, England's sort of final game of, of the tournament where they needed to beat Spain 2-0. Keegan and Brooking had both been injured throughout the tournament. Both felt they were fit and both felt that Don Howe had quite uh, a big role in persuading Ron Greenwood that it would be too much of a gamble to put them in to play in that game. 
Keegan and, and Brooking both felt a gamble was exactly what was needed at that time because they needed to win by two goals to get into the semi-finals, and so you know it was kind of a nothing to lose scenario. Um, and I think both came away from that feeling that Don had exerted a little bit too much of an influence, both on team selection and the way that they played throughout the finals. But you know, you know, end of the day, you look at it. England went through a World Cup finals unbeaten, and the fact that they played that kind of solid football maybe is what got them as far as they did. So it's one of those debates that that, that still rages, if you like. Yeah, I think there was there was a famous piece of footage at the time where was it Jack Charlton, I think, who was working for possibly ITV, um, yeah. where he was interviewing both Greenwood and Howe, I think by the by the side of the pool, and it got a little yes. bit sort of heated. Yes, it did, because, you know, Jack Charlton was saying, well, why didn't you play this way? Why didn't you, you know, in the, particularly in the second half of the West Germany game, you could have pushed people like Graham Ricks and Steve Koppel a bit further forward, made sure that they were attacking a little bit more. And, you know, Don Howe turned around him and said, look, we played exactly the same way we played against France and we beat them 3-1. And we all, we all know what a good team France turned out to be in that tournament. And, you know, no one was criticising us then. Uh, and now, because things didn't quite go the same way, you're, you're sort of turning around and, and criticising us. And I think also there was this this underlying feeling that Jack Charlton, as someone who, who was a, a sort of a football manager and I guess past the fraternity, should have maybe have cut them a little bit more slack. And, you know, Ron Greenwood at some point turns around to him and says, oh, you know, you're turning into be a good good journalist, Jack. Um, and felt that he'd sort of almost crossed the divide and, you know, hang on, you're meant to be one of us, not one of them. Um, it does make for a very interesting piece of, of TV. Um, it, it got quite a lot of play when Jack Charlton died. Um, a lot of people were sort of posting that on, on social media and saying, yeah, here's, here's a good clip to watch. So if people haven't seen it, it's certainly worth a look. Yeah, certainly. So many players throughout the book um, who you've spoken to or picked up on quotes for, just say, as a coach, how his training sessions were just so interesting, so varied, diverse. And it was almost the fact is because he knew that the players he had on the pitch in front of him, they all had a, a short attention span, really. Yeah, and Don had grown up in an era where training was was dull, to say the least. I mean, it would be running around and around the, the track or running up and down the steps of the stand, hoofing a ball down the field every now and again, and some days not even seeing a football. And Don realised that that was not what was going to keep the attention of, of professional footballers. They needed to be stimulated. They needed to do exercises on the field that actually related to what they would be doing in the game. And so, yeah, you're right. All the players said that his, his sessions were very varied, always different, always interesting. You know, Bob Harris, who was a journalist who worked very closely with Bobby Robson, said that he watched a lot of England training sessions. And, and, and he said, you know, even as an observer, he found them fascinating to watch, never got bored with them. And I think that was, you know, one of one of certainly one of Don Howe's strengths uh, in that he did keep things interesting and, and he did keep people's attention. So we've we've got England on the go. We've still got Arsenal on the go um, because as as eighty two finished at the World Cup, there Ron Greenwood 
he he hung up his hat and said, no, I'm I'm out. And Bobby Robson was to take control of England. And at sort of a similar time, I think, was, was Terry Neal sacked from Arsenal and then Don Howe became the caretaker manager, eventually becoming full-time manager. These are both running at the same time. Yes, and again, I think it's the fact that Bobby Robson had such a close relationship with Don, trusted him, knew that there wouldn't be a conflict of interest. He was happy to keep Don as his assistant for England, even after Don had had stepped up in 83 to become Arsenal manager, which by its very nature means that it's a a much greater commitment uh, than than just being coach. You know, all the other things that we talked earlier about that that you have to do as manager. But Don was adamant that he wanted to, to continue working with England. Bobby Robson, I think, you know, would have loved to have had Don on the books as a full-time assistant manager. Um, and it was a frustration to him that he never could. Interestingly, you know, when I spoke to, to Don's son, Rob, he said that he doesn't think his dad would have actually wanted to have taken that role. He wouldn't have wanted to be a full-time assistant manager for England because it wouldn't have kept him occupied enough. Right. Um, he would have missed the day-to-day contact with the players so working day to day at Arsenal and then still having his interest in England was was the perfect scenario for him. And as I say, you know, Bobby, even though he couldn't get Don as, as full time assistant, had no qualms about keeping him on even when he was uh, full time Arsenal manager. Um, although by the time they got to the 86 World Cup, that was no longer the case because it wasn't long before that that, um, that Don was was moved on as um, Arsenal manager because things, as we said earlier, hadn't really worked out for him as manager. Yeah, and and that was a period of time when, when George Graham came in from from Millwall to manage Arsenal. But just back to, to Bobby Robson, when he when he took control of England back then, he, that friendship had, had been there and it was, was blooming and he speaks really highly of Don. Uh, he said his experience is invaluable um, and there's a, a piece in in the book where uh, one word sums up Bobby Robson's relationship with Don Howe brothers, that they were rock solid. And that was, that was by a journalist and author, Bob Harris. Mm-hmm. Um, and amazingly, he was never a full time paid member of staff for England was, was Don Howe. Apparently it was 200 pounds a game rather than a, a 25 pounds, sorry, a 25,000 pound salary. Yeah, I mean, that, so that, that that is the the interesting thing about it. I mean, if, you know, you you think now of the the kind of number of staff that an England team has, and and the number of full time staff and and you know support staff and coaches in all different kind of roles. Um, but you know, Don was was quite happy just to be doing it on on that part time basis. Bobby was happy to have him working on that basis, and it, and it's seemed to work well for them and and certainly you know you look at the the results um that they that they achieved together you you can't argue with it um even though obviously Bobby Robson had various periods throughout his England career where the knives are out for him and and I think that's another strength certainly another strength that Bobby Robson saw in Don Howe was that he was such a support to him when things did go badly and when there were the a lot of headlines um, doubting Robson's 
ability and 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 sort of suitability as England manager. You know, he always knew that that Don Howe was right there beside him and gave him an awful lot of support. Yeah, it was, it was real, real true friendship between them. And let's say that that period of sort of eighty six was a uh, quite a hard one, um, as well as sort of going forward for for Bobby Robson as England manager as well. The eighty six World Cup in in Mexico, uh, as we just mentioned, was a period of time where um, he he would split from Arsenal. And we've mentioned that he he liked to keep his training sessions all all nice and and varied, and the players really responded to that. He was quite vocal, though, in his training and his coaching, but he would still sort of take on comments from from the players who, who was coaching, uh, especially in 86 after the the sort of disappointing opening two games. There was the defeat to Portugal and a draw with Morocco. He was quite open to, to what the players thought. Yeah, I mean, Don was, as I said, was was pretty open-minded and and he knew that he didn't know everything, which is, I think, is you know a great strength of anyone in it, in any profession. So, yeah, they went into '86 World Cup, didn't get off to a very good start. Don had wanted England to play um, as he did with a lot of his teams, a sort of quite a high pressing game. He wanted the forwards to be pressing the back four. You know, it seems to become it. it in recent years, it's become the, you know all the rage. You look at the way sort of Man City and Liverpool play, and you know it was the, the Gagan press, as they call it, and and you know the front players pressurising the, the back four with the ball. But you know Don Howe would have been doing that as long ago as, as the, the Arsenal double team. So he'd worked hard on getting the players fit when they got to Mexico. I think they were very surprised at how hard he pushed them in the early training sessions. He thought they, everyone thought that they would just sort of be eased into it because it was so hot. Don Howe had them out there for a couple of hours in the blazing heat, making sure that they were as fit as they could be. But after the first couple of results and and, and they had sort of a, a conversation about how they were going to approach the game against Poland, their third game, which they had to win to stay in the, in the competition. And Glenn Hoddle was, was telling me that there was a lot of discussion saying that, that Don, we just we just need to maybe take our foot off the gas a little bit, not press quite so much because we're going to blow burn ourselves out. We just need to ease back a little bit um, and find a compromise, which which they did. You know, they didn't abandon it completely, but they just sort of took their foot off the gas a little bit when it came to pressurising the the, you know, the opponents back four when they had the ball, and that was the kind of thing he was able to do, he was able to take on other people's ideas and, you know, obviously it worked out pretty well in beating Poland and then beating Paraguay in the last 16 and getting into the famous game against Argentina. So I think, you know, that definitely did make a difference. Yeah. Well, I don't don't want to dwell too much on Argentina. We all know about that one. But the World Cup came to an end um, and then he, obviously he was out of a managerial coaching job in the, the domestic game. So apparently he took some time and went to Saudi Arabia. Worked in Saudi Arabia, just sort of coaching at, at sort of, you know, youth players. Apparently got an offer to to be manager of the, the Saudi Arabian national team, which I think he thought about, um, decided that it wasn't the right thing for his family and just, sort of, you know, came back and was watching games and, 
and really looking for for something. And, and another one of his old football buddies, you know, we talked about Bobby Robson, um, who he played with at West Brom, became friends with Terry Neal at Arsenal. And then another one, Bobby Gould, who, who became a good friend of his, even though Don Howard sort of basically kicked him out of Arsenal because he didn't feel he was good enough. Bobby Gould called him up and said, look, I'm manager of Bristol Rovers. I could do with a bit of help. Would you come and, and, and give me a hand? And, you know, the famous quote from, from Bobby Gould, he said it was like asking Miss World for a date and her turning around and saying yes. <laughs> um, you know, he really wasn't expecting him to, to go and agree to, to work with him. And, but he did. You know, he worked there for a couple of months, helped him out. And so when Bobby Gould then became manager of Wimbledon after Dave Bassett moved on in, in the summer of 87, Bobby called up Don Howe and said, look, do you fancy coming and helping out? Again, on a part-time basis to start with, thought it may just be for the summer programme. They, they went on tour to Scandinavia and then came back and and Don said, yeah, OK, I'll, I'll do it, um, become your full-time coach. Um, and, you know, and, and as anyone who remembers that period knows, you know, went on and, and beat Liverpool in the FA Cup final, which, you know, may have been one of Don's greatest coaching achievements. When you look at, you know, the Wimbledon of that time, the crazy gang, no money, playing at Plough Lane in front of 5,000 and playing in the Cup final against a Liverpool team that had won the league that year with what was considered to be one of the greatest of all Liverpool teams, Barnes and Beardsley in their pomp, been absolutely thrashing the pants off a lot of very good teams um, and were given no hope of beating them in the final. But Don came up with a plan where they could neutralise John Barnes by moving Dennis Wise from the left, where he was Wimbledon's most creative player, to a position on the right where he was basically just going to help shut down John Barnes. And, you know, it, it worked and they won the game 1-0 and, as I say, one of, probably one of his, his finest coaching achievements. One of those... That one of the real FA Cup romance stories, that one, um, one that many of us will really remember. But I think it's safe to say when he did go to Wimbledon to start with and, and looked around Plough Lane and inevitably compared it to to what he had at Arsenal and thought, hang on a minute, this isn't a, uh, a particularly nice environment. But the one thing that really he did pick up on was their work ethic and being a coach and and he was obviously more than happy to to be involved there yeah i mean if someone was prepared to work hard then don had a lot of time for them and he realized pretty quickly that what he was surrounded by wasn't the kind of facilities that he'd been used to at you know at arsenal and and other places that he'd worked but if the players were willing to put in the hard work, then it really didn't matter what the changing rooms were like or what the quality of the, the, the surface at the training ground was. What mattered was what he could get out of the players. And he saw the players as people he could work with and who would listen to him and that he could improve. I mean, yeah, he said he kind of felt he felt he added an extra sort of 25% to, to that team. And that was enough to kind of help them achieve the success that they did. And it certainly was for a period of time until things started to get a little bit more out of hand and, and eventually kind of tired of the, the antics of the sort of the Vinnie Joneses of this world. It, it was you know, a very happy period of time for him. Yeah. 
Well, obviously, it was the, the same period of time where um, England went to the European Championships of 1988 in, in West Germany. England fans will know it. It wasn't the, the best of times. England had a, a disaster of a tournament. But it would sort of lead to a, uh, an unfortunate period of time for him where he um, shortly afterwards he had to have a, a triple heart bypass operation. Yeah, I mean, Don had not, um, and I guess this is probably true of a lot of, of people involved in, in sort of coaching at any, any era, you know, so involved in what they were doing, didn't spend an awful lot of time thinking about their own health, if you like, probably didn't eat very well, lots of late night meals on motorways and stuff like that. You know, his family were telling me that he wasn't one to be thinking about looking after his health, was a little bit overweight, hadn't had a healthy lifestyle and, you know, suffered, as you say, uh, suffered pains during after the, the European Championships and ended up having to have fairly major surgery. And the, the guys at Wimbledon were amazed at how quickly he was back on the training field. And again, that says a lot about Don's desire just to get out there and work. He didn't do it to prove that he was superhuman or anything. He just missed it. Um, and as soon as he was back on the training field, he was he was running around and people were saying, hang on, hang on, Don, take it easy. But, you know, it, it, it didn't matter to him. He just wanted to get out there and work. And, you know. Had an, with certainly with Bobby Robson as they looked to rebuild from the wreckage of that '88 towards the 1990 World Cup, but you obviously felt there was a lot of work to do. Yeah, but here, sort of in this sort of interim period of '88 and '90, and and just shortly afterwards, was where he had a, a whole variety of of other clubs he was he was coaching at. Um, and, you, and you already mentioned Newbury Town right at the very beginning, but he he had spells at Barnet, at QPR, Coventry as well, and Chelsea as well. So he, he was he was quite varied in his sort of teams that he was around at the time, while still being England coach alongside Bobby Robson getting ready for 1990. Yeah, I mean QPR fans have quite fond memories of, of his, the couple of years he had there as as manager. He took over from Trevor Francis. Um, and was was in charge for a couple of seasons. They were sort of mid-table, which, you know, for QPR was probably about right. Uh, played some good football, had some good players, people there like, you know, Roy Wegerly, who who speaks very highly of, of Don Howe and, and the freedom he gave him to play. I mean, again, another example of how, even though Don Howe was sort of saddled with this, this image of being a dour coach, he did like individual players in his team, you know, the Charlie George, Liam Brady, Roy Wegley to, to an extent the QPR. He liked those to have those kind of players to call upon. So QPR fans have a pretty good uh, memory of him as, as manager. He went then went on to Coventry and gave that up in the end, having just appointed Bobby Gould to work with him because it was just becoming too much. He, he, he was still living around London, was commuting backwards and forwards to Coventry suddenly found himself sort of almost daydreaming on the motorway and, and driving much too fast and getting stopped by the police. And at that point, he said, you know, this is, this is getting silly. I'm probably, it's getting dangerous. So he left Coventry, ended up working with Chelsea for a while, um, you know, and we're moving on a little bit now. It was 92, he worked with Chelsea, who again had some, some health problems, uh, which is with why he, he kind of pulled back from that. But, um, yeah, as I said earlier, he was he was happy to work. With, if someone said they wanted him to work with him, 
he would he would go and do it. He just likes to know that someone appreciated what he did and you know he didn't necessarily always look at what club it was and and what the setup was if a manager came to him especially if it's someone that he'd worked with before like you know Terry Butcher at Coventry or whatever he was happy to do it yeah why whilst he liked working alongside maybe the the flamboyant type players who who wanted to be coached as well he he never sort of forgot his defensive sort of history um in the fact that for england in sort of consistently qualifying for tournaments in all those qualifying games goals conceded column was was generally fairly low and that was that was down to him yeah almost zero i think i think i've mentioned in the book that after they failed to qualify for the 84 european championships their next i think it was their next three qualifying campaigns they sort of won, they played 25 games, barely lost a game and, and only conceded three goals in, in that period. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're, certainly their they're success in, in qualifying was based on very solid defence. The interesting thing was um, having qualified for the 1990 World Cup in Italy, there was a lot of discussion of whether the kind of defence they were playing, the, the, the sort of the traditional flat back four, was actually going to carry them as far as they would want to go. I mean, they, they, they'd fallen at latish hurdles in the previous two World Cups. Don was, was aware that maybe they needed something a little bit more to carry them further. And there was a lot of discussion at that time that maybe England should be prepared to try something else and go to... Um, uh, a sweeper system, if you like, with, with sort of three centre backs and and two full backs pushing on to kind of create the, the width further forward. Don was quoted as supporting that. The, the press tried to build that up as a little bit of a conflict of ideas between him and Bobby Robson. Again, fortunately, the the Robson how relationship was close enough that 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 didn't become an issue between them you know that they respected each other's views enough that they could you know certainly live with the fact that they might not see eye to eye on everything um but certainly the uh the way that the 1990 world cup worked out with with that sort of sweeper system coming in had been something that had been brewing for a while and appears to have stemmed from from certainly from don and, and maybe some others thinking that what we've done up to now is not necessarily going to give us the flexibility to, to to move on and push on further. Yeah, we're, we're talking of sort of the players of that time were, were Mark Wright, Terry Butcher, Des Walker as sort of a, the three central defenders and, and flanked by sort of Stuart Pearson and Paul Parker, um, of which Stuart Pearce, he was, he, was re- he had a real effect um, on Don Howe. They worked well together. Yeah, again, you know, Stuart Pearce, another one of those people who who says how influential Don was. He learned a lot from from Don, um, and again, I guess being another fullback, you know, people like Viv Anderson, Gary Netherall said the, said the same mm. thing that they learned a lot about playing their position as well as playing within a defensive system. They also learned a lot about their own sort of trade as a fullback as well from Don. You know, and he was very good at passing. His, his knowledge and, and his experience onto people. 
and you know you, you see how many of those people went on into into kind of coaching themselves that you know clearly they were they were getting something from him so yeah again very influential on on that 1990 world cup especially when you look at the way they did play at the back throughout the tournament yeah well we we got past belgium and we got past cameroon just on both of those um but here's something i wasn't aware of apparently it was don howe who gave the team talk ahead of the west germany semi-final as bobby robson was having a nap uh, well that's 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 the story and i think it, i think it's Paul parker that relates that that story that um yeah you know bobby was was so tired and worn out and was feeling the pressure so much that you know when they got to the stadium for the semi-final sort of bobby robson found a, a quiet corner and, and shut his eyes for a, for a while um yeah interesting not the first time that 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 you know bobby had sort of there'd been that kind of story around bobby robson in the, in the 86 world cup i relate the story that terry neal told me that once they got to the, the quarterfinals and were heading off to mexico um yeah, again, Bobby was feeling the pressure. There was a lot of tension, and and Don Howe said to Terry Neal that you're over here as a sort of a host and an ambassador. Can you take him out and get him drunk for a night to so kind of just to help ease the pressure? And I guess it was the same kind of thing. But you know, Bobby Robson just shut his eyes for half an hour, decompressed a little bit, um, and yeah, and, and Don gave the the final sort of talk um, before the semi final. Oh, wonderful. Obviously, that we all know how that one went as well. Um, but we exited the the World Cup, which saw obviously Bobby Robson leave the the position and go to the Netherlands for for PSV, um, and in turn, Don Howe um, sort of left his position at England as Graham Taylor came in with his own staff, and uh, sort of referring back to. Bobby Robson sort of saying he, he couldn't believe that Don Howe hadn't got a, a contract at, at England and was only on, what's it, £200 a game. Graham Taylor had managed to get sort of Laurie McMenemy a full-time contract there with the FA. But that period of time for England, 92, I mean, with, with the greatest of respect, the players weren't of sort of the, maybe the, the 1990 calibre. Do you think how could have worked with Taylor? Or could he have worked with those players? I think he could. Now, you're right in saying that maybe the, the, the quality of the players wasn't what they had in 1990 and what they would have again in 96. It certainly was a bit of a transition period yeah. uh, for, the, for the England team. I think it's very difficult to imagine a scenario where Don Howe wouldn't have improved the performances that, that, that they, they achieved under Graham Taylor. And now without denigrating people like Laurie McMenemy and Phil Neal, who worked with Graham Taylor, I mean, you know, as we all know, there's that revealing documentary, you know, about Graham Taylor's time as, as England manager. And certainly McMenemy and Neil, the contribution they appear to be making doesn't come out particularly favourably in that. So, if you know, if that is all you have to go on, it's very difficult to think that Don Howe wouldn't have made a difference. And I think Don Howe was was the kind of personality that he could have worked with pretty much everyone. He wasn't ever one of those coaches who managers suspected was trying to get their job. 
and especially by that time in, in his career, yeah, I think people knew that Don knew what he was good at, and he wasn't someone who you know you had to be looking over your shoulder to see if they were about to stab you in the back. So I'm sure Don could have made a difference. Um, I don't think it was something that he sort of necessarily hankered after. And you know when the when the discussion first came up of him potentially either taking over as a caretaker before they appointed Venables and then maybe working with Terry Venables, his first reaction was to say, look, I've done 10 years with the England team. I've done my stint. Um, I'm very happy with what we've achieved and you know, I'm happy to leave it behind me. So I certainly don't think that he was sitting there watching Graham Taylor and, and McMenemy and everyone else and, and necessarily hankering after getting back in there again. Yeah. Okay. When... Graham Taylor resigned after the the failure for for 1994. His name was sort of banded around as being a potential manager, um, but as you said, doesn't doesn't want it. But he is one of the ones that maybe suggests Terry Venables to the FA. Yeah, I think yeah, you know, Don knew what um, what a, you know what a good coach Venables had been, you know. I think from an early from an early period, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the sort of kind of coaching courses that grew up in the sort of fifties and sixties, and you know, were held at Lillyshaw, and Don had ended up sort of guiding a lot of those those courses, and and Terry Venables had been one of the young players who, in the wake of sort of Malcolm Allison, but you know, was like the next wave to come through, um, and so Don had seen and had experience of. Terry Venable's knowledge of the game. He'd seen what he's achieved at various different clubs and he sensed that he was, you know, the right man for the job and wasn't afraid to say so and held no bitterness over the fact that when Don lost his job at Arsenal, part of the story around that time had been that they apparently had approached Terry Venables behind his back to take over. Right. which Venables was unaware of. You know, Venables was unaware of, of, of Don not being um, in the loop, if you like, and, and you know, had apologised to Don at the time, said, look, I had no idea that this was this was being done without your knowledge and, you know, ended up not taking the Arsenal job um, because he didn't necessarily like the way it had been done. So there was no hard feelings over that. He was happy to, to suggest in the media that, that Venables would be a good man for the job. And then, you know, as it turned out, went back on what he'd said about no, 10 years is enough. I don't want to work with England yeah. anymore. Uh, and, and was when approached by Venables, again, that old thing, if someone wanted him to do the job and, and you know, they made it, they said to him, this is what we want you to do. This is why we think you can help. Don was happy to put his tracksuit back on and, and get back out there on the, on the training field. And not only did um, Venables bring in Don Howe, he also brought back in Brian Robson, who at the time was was still at Manchester United. Um, it's kind of nice those little sort of you can tie those little ends up. Yeah, with, obviously. Yeah, the, the Brian it's Robson connection. That, that, and you know, with with all the the expertise that that Don had in in sort of coaching defences over the years, this was the first time he had actually been appointed as a defensive coach, almost like the sort of the American football style defensive coordinator. That is specifically what Terry Venables brought him in to do. The idea was that Venables would work on sort of the the front five or six. Don Howe would concentrate on the defence. 
and Brian Robson would work on sort of more individual skill type things. Um, and it seemed to work pretty well. Don Howe worked well with Venables in that in Venables made it very clear from the start that he wanted his team to be flexible and not rigid. He wanted fluidity up front, you know, famously he tried various different formations, the diamond formation and various other things in the way that he wanted his team to attack. But he also wanted flexibility at the back. Um, and he basically got Don to work on his own version of that sort of back three with, with two wide men. Now, the big difference, as people probably know, is that whereas under Robson, it was three centre-backs and then two full-backs providing the width. The way Venables wanted to do it was one centre-back flanked by two full-backs and then you basically had two midfield players p- providing the width. And what that did was enable them to be a little bit more creative going forward. But then with that, you then needed a system where if a team was playing wingers, you needed to be able to go to a back four. You pushed the fullbacks out to the normal fullback positions and you then needed a mid- central midfielder who could drop back and play as a centre-back. And you know, Don was very influential in making sure that flexible formation worked properly, that people knew understood their jobs. Someone like Tony Adams, who would be in the in the lone centre back in the middle of the two kind of notional fullbacks who were playing alongside him, understood where to position himself, how to kind of channel the play into certain areas so that, that system worked. And that was Don's job on the training field to make sure that that worked smoothly. And it, it certainly paid off as the uh, the first four games that England played under Terry Venables with Don Howe alongside him, four clean sheets. Yeah, four clean sheets in the first four games. It, it, it's, I guess, a continuation of a pattern. And, and although you, you, know, you can't read everything into just looking at bare results, hmm. it certainly seems to be more than a coincidence that that seems to be a pattern that kept repeating itself um, whenever Don became England coach. Obviously, we all know how Euro 96 went, which was obviously great for the country and must have been must have been great for Don as well. Yeah, and, and I think he, he could see it coming. Um, I had an interesting conversation with Darren Anderton, who said right. that he sat down people like him and Steve McManaman and some of the younger players a year out from Euro 96 and said to them, look, you've got a great experience coming up. You know, he, he'd been to World Cup finals himself, seen what the excitement was when England got into late stages. He'd lived through the World Cup of 1966 in England and, and knew what it meant to the country. And I think he did a good job of impressing upon those players what a special time they had coming up and that they should really embrace it. To the extent where Darren Anderson said that he actually turned down a transfer to Manchester United in the summer of 95, because his experience of when he'd moved from Portsmouth to Tottenham was that it, it kind of took him a year to kind of find his feet and get settled in and start playing his best football. He didn't want that to happen again with a potential move to Manchester United, find himself out of the England squad and miss out on on all the excitement that Don Howe had been sort of telling them was was to come their way. So, um, yeah, he he was he was a good influence on some of the younger players. And during the tournament, they said that he was very good at just kind of keeping them calm. They knew that he was someone who'd sort of been there and seen it all and done it and was someone they could go to for advice and and a cool head, if you like. 
and just kind of help them keep all that excitement in check because you know it was a, a once in a lifetime experience for them absolutely yeah I, I remember now you reading the part about darren anderson and thinking that that was that was an amazing story and, and it makes you wonder whether that sort of scenario would happen in this day and age even though we're we're only what 30 years ago i guess 25 years ago um but i guess you only find out in 25 years time when the stories actually come out um whether it's yeah. a similar I su- situation i suspect it wouldn't i suspect a move to a, a big club that was going to offer you a lot of money probably would would be enough to sway it for most players these days um but we, we would think yeah i imagine so glenn hoddle then was in the next England manager after Terry Venables departed after Euro 96 and decided that he didn't need Don Howe as part of his England team. And, and Don was, was happy with that, which is sort of very sort of as, I guess, as you would expect him to be. Yeah. Yeah. Glenn said, you know, Glenn told him that he didn't necessarily see a role for him. Um, and Don Howe wasn't going to push it. He's he, Again, he said, look, if you don't want me, you don't think there's a role, fine. I'm not yeah. gonna I'm not gonna try and persuade you. And and with sort of Glenn's answer to that and, and Don's answer as well, he, he went back to Arsenal um once again. Uh but this time to work with the youth team alongside Liam Brady, who um he'd he'd been with back in um the late late seventies, early eighties, wasn't it? Um and between them they bought through the likes of, of Ashley Cole. Yeah, um, Brady had, had been appointed to head up Arsenal's sort of academy and, and youth team in, uh, I think it was 96, asked Don if he was interested in, in working with him. Don initially said no, and then I think a year later, got on the phone to Liam and said, you know what, is that job still open? I think I quite fancy it. Again, you know, it's it, to a lot of people, it would seem like a, a sort of come down. Here you've got a guy who's coached England to the latter stages of, of major finals and he's going to go back and coach a youth team. Um, but I think a couple of things, obviously the fact that it was Arsenal made a big difference. The fact that it was Liam Brady, someone who he had obviously worked with and coached and had a huge um, admiration for and a lot of time for who was asking him that, that certainly made a difference. And I think by that time he just wanted to get out working again. And, you know, a lot of people sort of said, Don Howe, you, you couldn't have got a better youth team coach. You know, so often the youth team coach is, is someone who's sort of trying to make their way in football and make their way in their coaching career. And they might be young and slightly inexperienced. But who better could you have coaching your, your kids than someone who'd done everything that Don Howe had done? Um, so I think Liam Brady was, you know, thrilled to get him on board. Um, and then... Yeah, I think Don, what Don and, and Liam did, in a sense, was kind of solve that conundrum of is your major task to produce players for the first team or is it to, to win trophies? And, and, you know, they managed to do both, really. They won a couple of FA Youth Cups, sent a lot of players through to good football careers, you know, including, as you said, Ashley Cole and quite a few other players. So I think, you know, Don enjoyed that role for for a long period of time um eventually gave it up when he when he decided that you know what the new breed of players are starting to become i think they know a little bit more than they do and Mm. maybe 
you know, it's time for me to step back and, and enjoy retirement. And, you know, after all the years he put in to football, I don't think anyone could begrudge him that. Absolutely not, no. Uh, and the, one other thing that um, I picked up on, much like he had recommended sort of Terry Venables to the FA, uh, he was approached by the the Irish FA, the FIA, and he had input into Giovanni Trapattoni becoming manager there. So, I mean, it's it's not just sort of England-based, really, is it? He had, he had a, sort of a worldwide knowledge? Yeah, or? I think, he, he, yeah, he, he did. He definitely did have a worldwide knowledge, um, you know, and, and a worldwide reputation. And, you know, people wanted his advice and, and his knowledge, whether it was the Irish FA asking him to help them appoint a new manager or it was Channel 4 getting him to work on their Italian football yes. coverage. <laughs> um, and through that, you know, George Graham asking him for to get advice on some of the Italian teams that Arsenal ended up playing in Europe. Um, you know, there was a, a lot of people who realised that, you know, Don Howe had a lot to offer in, in various different areas. Sadly, though, he was to pass away on the 23rd of December 2015, shortly before Christmas. He was aged 80 um, and had, had shown signs of dementia in the years that he approached that age. But from across football the tributes poured in all over for him which yeah, was some sums him up i mean what do you think he's he still has a legacy in the game to this day i'm sure i think he does i mean i think you know you look at the people that thought so much of him uh, and said you know such great things about him and you, and you look at the the roles they have in the game whether it was uh you know, as we mentioned earlier, Brian Robson and, and you know who, who, who at the time of, of Don's death was still coaching, or it's a, it a Gary Lineker, you know, telling everyone who kind of follows him what a great coach Don was. You know, you you hope that even with the passing of time, that that legacy will remain and that people will remember everything that Don that Don did for a number of clubs and. You know, more generally for English football, you know, it would be a shame if, if that is lost. And and again, you know, without sort of, you know, trying to sound too trite, that's what was one of the one of the, the motivations for writing a book like that. You hope that it does sort of memorialise what someone has done for football and you know what their legacy is. Well, it's it's a great book. I, I really enjoyed reading it. It's uh, educated me. Um, it's the story of Don Howe, English football's greatest coach. Uh, it's got a, a subtitle, Hero in the Shadows, which was uh, a term coined by Arsenal's Daily Cannon website um, on at the time of his at the time of his death, um, which I think is is quite a uh, quite a phrase. Hero in the shadows. He's he's all always been there, and but not not wanting to take that that limelight. David, thank you very much for your time. Um, what, pleasure. what else are you looking at at the moment? Who, who are you writing about? I'm, uh, I'm working on a couple of cricket projects now. I've um, done a few cricket books in the past, but I've had a sort of a, a streak of football books. So um, I'm, I'm back on cricket for a while. And, uh, uh, but I'm sure I'll be, I'll be returning to football at some point. Look forward to that. And uh, I must also say thank you very much to uh, to the guys at Pitch Publishing where um, you can you can pick up the book 
there. Um, David, once again, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. My many thanks go to David there for his time. His book is called Don Howe, A Hero in the Shadows. It is published by Pitch Publishing and available from their website and in all good bookshops. This has been another in our England Manager series. And whilst Don wasn't an England manager, I'm sure you'll appreciate just the contribution he made to our national side. And those he worked alongside. As I mentioned at the beginning, I've been researching Graham Taylor and I hope to bring you that episode soon. All the previous England Manager episodes, they can be found at your podcast provider if you've missed any and indeed all the other ones too. Thanks as always for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget you can follow the podcast on social media. Just search Three Lions Podcast. You can find it on the likes of Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and you can also find it on YouTube too. Just feel free to like, subscribe, and all that jazz. So until the next time, take care of yourself. Cheers. Cheers.